Isaiah chapter 34. And that's what we will be looking at this evening, Isaiah 34. Join me now in a word of prayer. Father, this evening we come before your throne of grace to seek, Lord, everything that you would give us so we would understand, Lord, your word. Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and bring to us, Lord, your wisdom and knowledge and your understanding that we may apply, Lord, these things that we study, these things that we hear tonight to our very lives. We desire that you would heal us and cleanse us and purify us, Lord, so that Every distraction is taken out of the way, and we can hear you clearly. We pray, Father, that you will use that which you give us tonight through us as we let people know that Jesus Christ is coming soon and coming again, and how they need to be ready for his return. That the world, the flesh, and the devil would not be a hindrance any longer to them in any way. And that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and Master and King. Lord, tonight we pray for those who are ill, those who are sick among us and with our, in our families and, and in our Church community, we, we pray tonight for the Ortiz family, uh, the loss of uh, Kathy's grandmother in New Mexico, Kathy Ortiz's grandmother. We also want to lift up uh, Pete Zelaya Jr., who is combating hepatitis C and is not doing well today. We lift them up to you, Father, that you will bring healing to their bodies to his body and to those others who are sick here among us today that we lift up to you right now. Thankful, Father, that you are still the healer, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, can, can change lives physically for good. And we entrust these people to you, Lord God, those suffering pain of loss and those suffering from from physical ailments, Lord. We lift them all up to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Isaiah 34, beginning at verse 1. Come near, you nations, to hear, and heed, you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them, he has given them over to the slaughter. Also, their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, 
And the mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Chapters 34 and 35 of Isaiah deal with both the day of the Lord's vengeance and judgment on the Gentile world, as well as the blessing that the long-despised people of God in Israel and Jerusalem will enjoy under Messiah's rule and reign. Tonight we focus our attention upon the Lord's indignation or the Lord's vengeance and judgment. Now most of us would agree that judgment is not a comfortable subject. Judgment is not a comfortable subject. Isn't it interesting that even the Lord Himself considers it strange and alien? Go back to Isaiah 28, verse 21 for just a moment. For in this particular verse, it says, For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon. And notice this, that he may do his work, his awesome work. Now notice these statements. His awesome work and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. An awesome work and an unusual act. In the English Standard Version, which is a relatively new version, and it's very literal in its its interpretation. But in the uh, English Standard Version, it says, For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the Valley of Gibeon, you will be roused. And then it says, To do his deed. Evidently, they don't have that translation upstairs. But uh, it says, To do his deed. And then it says, Strange is his deed. Notice, strange is his deed, and to his work, alien is his work. It's a strange and an alien thing for God, this aspect of judgment. One other translation called the uh, Holman's Christian Standard Bible, primarily used by the Southern Baptist Church says, For the Lord will rise up as He did at Mount Perizim. He will rise in wrath as at the Valley of Gibeon to do His work. And then it says, His strange work, and, and I like this last part, and to perform His task, His disturbing task. It's a disturbing task, a strange and alien thing that He judges. Or that He considers judgment an alien and a strange thing. Now, there's an obvious reason for this. There's an obvious reason for this. Because judgment is the natural consequence and result of the fact that God is king. God is king. A king has to rule, or he is no king at all. And so he rules, and he reigns. And certainly there is his law. And at some point where rebellion takes over in in the hearts of those who have been created by Him, in this particular case our our God created us and and, and all, but rebellion must be finally dealt with. So God, even as King, 
God who is a merciful God, a gracious God, a loving God, you know, all of these things that we like to apply to the Lord, nonetheless, it comes back down to the very fact that because He is God, because He is King, because He is a ruler, He has to deal with rebellion. And think of this fact, that Almighty God has been unbelievably patient. He has been unbelievably, unbelievably patient with us, but the, but the prophets are clear. Not just us, in reality with, with the whole world, especially the whole sinful and wicked world. But the prophets are clear that His just anger is a reality that has to be reckoned with, and we deceive ourselves if we think otherwise. What we find in verses 1 through 3 of our text is God putting the world on notice that He will not tolerate rebellion and disobedience forever. He will will deal with, with that kind of rebellion. Especially the rebellion of those who have rebelled against Him wholeheartedly. Kind of in the face rebellion before God. Again, it says, Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and His fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Now, in what can be considered the specific context in which Isaiah continues to deal with the coming judgment against Assyria, the broader context now. So there is this, this kind of specific context, and then there is the broader context, includes all nations, not just Assyria, and not just Edom, as we'll find out in just a moment. Edom actually becomes a type of, or, or actually a, a, a kind of example of all the nations. But nonetheless, he is speaking of, and includes all nations, as far as judgment is concerned, especially in the far fulfillment to take place during the Great Tribulation. And I, and I specifically mention the Great Tribulation, which as we, we know from, from the Scriptures, the seven years of Tribulation, the last three and a half years of those seven years, is called the Great Tribulation. And so we're going to see somewhat of that as we go through chapter 34 tonight. But this prophecy is also in, in, in perfect harmony with passages in the book of Revelation, like Revelation chapter 19, as well as Zechariah 14. Now, I, I'm dealing with the very fact of, of the nations here, of all the nations. In Revelation 19, verse 19, it says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together, notice, to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Who is it talking about? It's talking about the nations gathering together against Jesus Christ and his army and his hosts. And then the beast was captured, it says, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So this is a, 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 a mighty, tremendous, and, and uh, obviously a, a pretty heavy picture of what is to take place when armies gather against God, and as well gathered against God's people and gathered against God's land, as we'll see in just a moment. 
For in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, these are passages we've kind of gone over and over as we've been going through the book of Revelation, but nonetheless, important for us to see and to remember. Zechariah 14 says in verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Now Jesus spoke plainly about a time that is to come known as the Great Tribulation. A time that due to the judgment of God, conditions on the earth would be at their very worst ever. In the history of man. We think it's gotten bad so far. It's going to get worse than what we've ever known it to be. It's going to be worse than what we would have considered the very worst kind of of horror that was done in the 30s that was called the Holocaust. Worse than that. Worse than the millions of people that were killed by the communist regime of Stalin before that. Worse than anything that we could ever imagine in history, this is going to be far greater. Jesus, as I said, talks about this. In Matthew 24, beginning at verse 21, Jesus said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, he says, No flesh would be saved. If God does not come and do something about these days, nothing would be saved. That's how horrendous this tribulation will be. But for the elect's sake, these days will be shortened for God's people. And this is why why Isaiah pleads. You see, this is why Isaiah pleads with the nations in verse 1. Come near you nations to hear and heed. Listen carefully to what's going to happen. Any kind of warning like this, folks, any kind of warning of this nature is always going to be to the heart that says, look, there's time, there's time to change. There's time to make right. But if that time is not taken, if that time is not used properly to come and get things taken care of with God, then this is what's going to happen. And he pleads with the nations to come near, to hear, and to heed, to pay attention, to take heed of the warning. What follows then? The warning. What follows the warning is is a military image of the armies of earth. In verse 2 and verse 3. And that's what we already saw. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes forth from it. The indignation I'm sorry, of the Lord is against all nations. His fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He's given them over to slaughter. But not just on earth, but also in heaven. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, as the fruit falling from a fig tree. It's interesting that we find in Scripture times when we, we see Satan 
come before God in heaven. In the book of Job, Satan comes when, when the sons of God gather together. Satan is there to accuse Job before God and to accuse God of being somebody who, who places this great covering over Job that he can't get to him. He says, but if you can just lift that hedge a little bit, you know, I'll, I'll make him curse you. Interesting that he would come. And to some extent, there is this, there's going to be this war in heaven as well. Not just on earth. But where the hosts that are following after the devil, the accuser of the brethren, will even be dealt with as well. And the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. It says their host shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine. You see, when God judges, He's going to judge completely and fully. When the consummation of the ages is, is, is being completed, it's going to be, a, this is the reason why judgment is going to be so terrible during that time. Because of the very fact that it's covering the whole earth, covering the whole world, dealing with all nations now. Let me just say that divine judgment and vengeance is not, is not a theological abstraction. Now, what I mean by that is that it is not just something that is to be taken from, from a very uh, 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 metaphoric type of a, uh, of a, you know, a way, you know. Well, divine judgment, you know, God is just saying that, you know, bad things will happen to bad people and eventually good things will happen to good people, you know. No. That's not what it's saying. It is clearly and concretely in the scriptures destruction. That is what's going to happen when God comes to judge. A perfect God, a righteous God, a true God, a just God is going to judge. He has made it clear. He's given warning. He's given us time. Get right. Get ready because I'm coming. The first time I came to save, but I'm going to come I'm going to give you time over the ages here, the time of the Gentiles, you know. I'm going to give you all this time to get right, but now I'm going to come. And notice the kind of destruction that we find in this particular chapter. A destruction, a slaughter, a stench and blood. Stench, I mean, I mean, it, they're talking about bodies being laid out and smelling. what happens when the body deteriorates the slaughter the, the, the way you know that's the nature of war isn't it it's an ugly thing it's, it's, it's not a glorious thing that is why it is an unusual act with God because God it says is a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of grace Sometimes, sometimes war is a necessary evil, if we can call it that. But we'd rather have military uh, around to keep peace than anything else. 
It is the sky rolling up like a scroll, it says here. Judgment, sky rolling up like a scroll, and stars falling from the heavens like leaves from winter trees. Fruit like falling off fig trees. The end of the world is a reality, you see, that too many people move to the back of their minds because they consider it too difficult to cope with. Such as the reality of their own approaching death, their impending death. But the Scriptures won't allow us to avoid these realities. They bring us to the point of facing them and living in the light of the reality of the judgment that is to come. How do we know that? Well, if you turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7 and following. Notice what he says. And I think this is a beautiful passage for a believer in Jesus Christ to, 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 to be encouraged by what, what Peter says as to how we are to live in the last days, how we are to live in the end of times. Because he says in verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. And it's more at hand actually for us now 2,000 years later than it was even for Peter. But he says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, he says, be serious and watchful in your prayers. So what are we supposed to be doing? We're to be watchful. We're to be praying. And then he says, and above all these things. And folks, I, I think that this is really the key to our understanding as believers of how we are to live knowing that the end is near. Peter says, above all these things, have fervent love for one another. Have fervent love for one another. What kind of love is it? It is a fervent, passionate agape. Because the word has to do with unconditional love. The word has to do with God's kind of love. A love that gives without giving anything in re- without expecting anything in return. That kind of love. It says, above all these things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And then he says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You see, we're in the last days. So guess what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to live like Jesus, who loved us with an everlasting love and an unconditional love, and who, who would have us to have a heart to, to love one another and to, to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, it says, minister it to one another. In other words, if you've give, been given a gift, give it away. Why? Because Jesus is coming. And judgment is coming. But you see what our perspective is? We're not hiding in holes, in caves. We are out being the love of Christ. We're to minister and to give to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, which means to serve, if anyone serves, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because Jesus is coming. 
That is why we live this way. That is why we are supposed to be this way. That is the perspective of the believer, knowing that Jesus can come at any time to love one another, to love with a fervent love, a passionate love, a love that gives without expecting anything back. If love is given back, praise the Lord. If love isn't, guess what? You still love. Because we are the example of Christ's love. And as I mentioned before, God is King, which is the truth upon which judgment rests. Judgment rests upon the fact that God is King, and He's a just King and a just God. But as we now see in the next section, beginning at verse 5, God is also a warrior. Because we see now mention of His sword. And we look at what His sword has to be wielded against. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Interesting thought. My sword shall be bathed in heaven. In other words, His judgment is planned. His judgment is known. It is going to happen. It is going to come against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, as Paul puts it in, in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. But my sword, he says, shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom. Interesting. And on the people of my curse for judgment. The people that have not come out from under the curse or that are cursed because of their rebellion against God for judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness. In other words, it's made fat with fatness. In other words, he's just cutting into the whole sacrifice. The picture is cutting into the sacrifice. With the blood of the lambs and goats, you see the picture? The lambs, the goats, it's sacrifice. With the fat of the kidneys of rams, it's sacrifice. And it's all the things that are being offered up in a sacrifice. Uh, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah. And a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them. The young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness. I mean, this is just a tremendous picture of judgment. But within the context or the picture of a sacrifice. And there's reason for this. I'll explain it in just a moment. But we could wonder, we could wonder as to the reason why Edom is set apart for destruction. Edom being somewhat southeast of, of, of Israel. Uh, east certainly, but southeast, you know, toward the Dead Sea area and all and, uh, and uh, Idumea, if you have the King James verse, I mean, the yeah, King James says Idumea, which is the same people. But, but we wonder as to the reason why Edom is set apart for destruction here, since we know that the Edomites were close neighbors to Israel, though often bitter rivals. In fact, in fact, in fact, they were blood brothers. They are blood brothers with the Israelites. Why and how? Because Edom is the alternative name. It, it means red, by the way. And it is the alternative name for Esau, 
which also means red. Esau, who exchanged his birthright with his brother Jacob for a bowl of meat and lentil stew. Sound good, huh? It sounded pretty good to him that he gave up his birthright for meat and lentil stew. We call it caldillo, I guess. But what could Edom have done? What could Edom have done to be the object of God's wrath in this way? And in essence, not only be the object of God's wrath, but also be the example for all nations. There's only one reason. In reality, there's only one reason. Because it had set itself against the people of God, God Himself, against God's Word and against everything that is right and good. They set themselves against God. That was the root from which everything else had sprung. Think about the memory of old wrongs. Think about the territorial jealousies. Think about the part, you know, uh, the, 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 think about uh, greed and their vindictiveness. Think about all of these things. Is it any wonder that Esau actually in the Scriptures represents the flesh? It represents the flesh. You go back to read that account in the book of, of Genesis and, and you realize it's just, you know, here's, here's Jacob who's actually not uh, all that much better. He had his issues with God. God, but, you know, the Bible says God, J- Jacob, he, he loved and Esau he hated <laughs> You know, so that's in God's mind and heart. But the important thing is here, as a matter of fact, that's Romans 9.13. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You know, they were twins, right? And Esau was being born. And Jacob, who... Heel catcher is what his name literally means. Heel catcher, you know, Esau's being he catches his heel and holds on to him. He says, "Get back in here. It's my. I want to go first, You know. So he had his own pride issues as well from the very beginning. Nonetheless, it says in Romans nine thirteen, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Think about Genesis twenty seven verse thirty six. Esau said, "He is he not rightly named Jacob, for he has supplanted me these two times." In other words, that's what you know the heel catcher part of it. Supplanted, you know what did he do? Uh, <laughs> got the birthright, you know, got the blessing and all of that. He took away my birthright, and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And he said, "How have you not reserved a blessing for me?" You know, Esau was all concerned about the blessing, gave it up for the stew, you know, and the birthright. Numbers 20, verse 18. Now going into the people, the descendants of Esau, then Edom said to him, You shall not pass through the land lest I come out against you with a sword. Now remember, in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel are going through the wilderness experience, and there was a certain part where they were there uh, wanting to cross to this king's highway, as it were, and and, uh, the, the king of Edom was in control of this, and they wouldn't let the Israelites pass through because they hated him. For what had happened to Esau, you see. You see how long that, that struggle lasted? Think just for this moment, just for a moment, the, the struggle that, are, that is taking place today in the Middle East. All of that is very basically the same thing. 
Hatred going all the way back to the things where, where the Israelites got blessings from God, but the, you know, the, the descendants of, of uh, uh, Ishmael didn't. Although they were blessed initially. And Ishmael was blessed initially. But it's, these things go back thousands of years. In 1 Kings chapter 11, going into the ages of the kings then, 1 Kings 11 verse 14, it says, Now the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was a descendant of the king of Edom. So, you know, they're just constantly always just being an, 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 an adversary against Israel. But in that particular case, the Lord raised him up. But we see this picture throughout all of the Old Testament. And the passage in verses 5 through 8 here moves us from the battlefield, battlefield to the temple as the picture of worldwide judgment is now seen as a sacrifice that God Himself offers as we saw the sword and the lambs and the goats and the innards and the kidneys and all the things that are being mentioned there and the blood, everything that was mentioned. And, and you see the mention of Bozrah itself. Even though the name Bozrah means great gathering, and you know there might be a different picture involved in that, but, but it's, it was an important city in Edom, and it draws our attention to the sacrifices that was known to have, uh, 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 it was known to have slaughtered his offerings there in that particular city for whatever they believed in and for whatever they followed. That's where they made their sacrifices was in Bozrah, and this is why God mentions them in this particular part of the prophecy when He says. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. As they themselves had slaughtered sacrifices in that city, now he says, I'm slaughtering and, and, and doing this as sacrifices. So it is God who now offers the wicked as sacrifices. He sees them as animals to be sacrificed for what they had done to his people. And notice in Jeremiah 46 verse 10. All of this gets put together. You know, look at the context of all of these things. For this is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, that he may avenge himself on his adversaries. The sword shall devour. It shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood. For the Lord God of hosts is a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. A sacrifice. As you have sacrificed my people and against my people, I will sacrifice you. Jeremiah 50, verse 27 says, Slay all her bulls, let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. They're the ones that are going out there you know, offering sacrifices against me and against my people. It brings to mind how, there, uh, how today in the Islamic culture that is that radically uh, against Israel today and radically against Judaism today, radically against these things, they're willing to sacrifice their young kids as suicide bombers. Their women as suicide bombers. Themselves as suicide bombers. As they're sacrificing these things to kill others, God says, one day, I'll sacrifice you. You see, as, 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 as one person sows, so shall he reap. If a person sows to the wind, he sows... The whirlwind. He reaps the whirlwind. If a person sows into corruption, he will reap corruption. 
We've talked about this principle before. As a matter of fact, last time. So no nation, now listen carefully, no nation was so consistently hostile toward Israel throughout the Old Testament as Edom. But that is also why Edom is representative, not so much of the nations in general, but actually of the enemies of Israel. And once we take hold of that, once we take hold of that, we are now in position to see the purpose of God's judgment. Now we get to see the purpose of God's judgment. What is it? It is to uphold Zion's cause. Notice verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. It cannot be made any more clear what the purpose of God's judgment is. It is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its stream shall be turned into pitch. Now, the picture again is now changing to something that we are familiar with back in Genesis 19, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. The stream shall be turned into pitch. In other words, no more water. Now it's just this pitch, this, this mortar, this stuff that you make brick out of and all, or, or that, you, that, you, you know, that, that you use in building or, or in, in plugging up holes, but it's not water. You know, it's just the ugliness of the mud. Its stream shall be turned into pitch. It's, it's dust into brimstone. Now there's, the, there's what gives us the key to understanding. What we, we understand fire and brimstone, right? So we know now the picture of this brimstone that, uh, you know, that was part of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Its land shall become burning pitch. So it's not just pitch or, or this, this mud, but it's burning up. It's, I mean, it's just, it, it, it looks like devastation, you know. It shall not be quenched night or day. In other words, it's on all the time. It, it smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. That has yet to happen. Though there have been lands that have been torched in, 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 that, in that way and in effect in that, in that uh, manner, but not to burn forever and ever. There is coming a time when that is going to happen. And so the image changes again as the prophet compares the day of the Lord to Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment. And much of this, by the way, is seen in Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation 16. So let's look at a couple of these things. Where one-third of the earth's vegetation, one-third of the oceans, one-third of the fresh water supply will be destroyed, destroyed and unusable. Look at Revelation 8 verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. Hail and fire. Fire, of course, indicative of the judgment that was brought to Sodom. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. I believe this is a large meteor, uh, uh, possibly. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. That's what brings up the blood, as it were. 
And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the water because it was made bitter. I think years ago they were saying that uh, back when that uh, nuclear plant in, in Russia, Chernobyl, happened, I think they said that uh, the translation of the word Chernobyl was Wormwood, I think. It's possible, I don't know. Somebody look it up in the internet, but not now. Wait till later. Turn to Revelation 16, verses 3 and 4. It says, The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. And then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. There's also a reminder for us here of the fall of Babylon. Go back just to Revelation 14, just a couple of verses earlier, and it says in verse 10, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, speaking of of, of the fall of Babylon and the beast and all, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. You see, this, this is pointing forward. It's pointing to the future. It's pointing to something yet to come. And let's not forget that the fires of eternal hell, the lake of fire, will never be quenched. It will never be quenched. Mark chapter 9, Jesus himself in, in verse 43 of Mark 9 says, "If your hand, Listen to this. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Three times it mentions it that way. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Is Jesus not driving home a point here? I think he's driving home the point. 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, rather than having two eyes, to be cast into hellfire, where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Your hands, your feet, your eye. What does it say? What you do, where you go, and what you see. And so, the proud nation of Edom was used as an example of what the Lord would do to all the Gentile nations during that great and terrible day of the Lord. And when God finishes His work, the land will be a desolate wilderness. Let's look at that uh, desolate wilderness in verse 11. But the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. 
Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness, which is not a very easy little passage to understand so much. But again, kind of drawing a picture of, of, of desolation here. And by the way, if you notice the animals being mentioned, you realize that these are animals that are not normally among the, the, the human population. You know, they stand away, stand outside of inhabited cities. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but, now shall, uh, but none shall be there, and all its princes shall... Be nothing. In other words, there's not going to be anybody there in these cities, in these places. And thorns shall come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles in its fortresses. What once may have been a beautiful sight will really just be, will just look like a deserted ghost town of the 1800s, as it were. Shall be a habitation of jackals, a courtyard for ostriches. Now I know that, you know, sometimes we drive through the you know, countryside or whatever, and somebody's decided to have an ostrich farm. So they've kind of brought them in a little bit, but normally they're not, you know, they're out in the wilderness, you know, out in the fields and stuff. Ostriches are, you know, really don't, aren't domesticated animals, as it were. Well, I guess it can be, but, you know. They only get them so that they can make steaks out of them. And, and they can boast, we have ostrich steaks. I tried it once. Gaming, gaming, gaming. Didn't like it at all. I don't know why I tried it. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals, and the wild goat shall bleed to its companion. Also the night creature shall rest there. Put your finger right there in this, this spot. I'm going to come back to it. The night creature shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. There the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch, gather them under her shadow. There also shall the hawks be gathered, every one with her mate. Now can you imagine a picture where entire cities and territories which have been previously inhabited by its builders, its developers, and even citizens are now overrun by wild birds and animals. I was thinking today that at one point in time, Alfred Hitchcock probably got that vision when he made that movie called The Birds. You remember that? I threw rocks at pigeons for days, man. After seeing that movie. But the animals and the birds that are mentioned do not normally inhabit populated cities and towns, but these will thrive because there will be no people there. There is something mentioned... As I said in verse 14, that is quite interesting. An animal called the night creature. <laughs> I'm not talking about the chupacabra or whatever. Just so you'll know, that's not, that's not what I'm aiming at here. All right. The Hebrew word for night creature, listen carefully. Some of you might just go, whoa. The Hebrew word for night creature is the word Lilith. Lilith. Anybody ever heard that word? Lilith? Lilith Fair? Anybody heard of the Lilith Fair? 
Lilith actually is the feminine form of the word night or darkness. Some translations call it a screech owl. How many of you have that? Screech owl. This is really interesting to me. Screech owl or a night monster or a night bird. We've heard the name Lilith. Well, now that I asked the question, not many of you have. But, but, but if you've heard the name Lilith, it's mentioned and it's been mentioned in recent years in connection, by the way, with radical feminism. Radical feminism. There is the Lilith Fair. Again, anybody heard of the Lilith Fair? A couple of you have? A few of you have. Okay. Tonight you get to know what the Lilith Fair is. Lilith Fair, which is called a celebration of women in music. It was founded by a musician named Sarah McLaughlin. Some of you have heard of Sarah McLaughlin. <laughs> Being a celebration of, of uh, women in music, I find it interesting that the bird is called a screech owl. You know, that, that's not music to my ears. You know, however a screech owl goes. But in looking up Lilith on a website called myjewishlearning.com, I found this description. Lilith, lady flying in darkness. Listen. The most notorious demon of Jewish tradition. Did you get that? The most notorious demon of Jewish tradition becomes a feminist hero. The, she, a beautiful demon of the night, seduced men and killed children. They're having music celebrations based on this demon, Lilith. <laughs> A beautiful demon of the night seduced men, killed children. What a wonderful example for today's feminism. Great, isn't it? How interesting that that's the word that is used for this night monster or night creature. And people today now have taken that and say, oh, we're going to make a, a movement out of this. Celebrate women. By the way, they're still killing children. Even before they're born. Verse 16. Search, Isaiah says. Search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate. For my mouth has commanded it, and his spirit has gathered them. In other words, all the we just saw described of the devastation, the desolation, and the destruction. He has cast the lot for them, and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation they shall dwell in it. The birds and the animals. You know, with so many people trying to spiritualize the scriptures today, trying to make it all just a matter of, you know, 
metaphors and stories and even some people say that much of the Old Testament is just legend. With so many people trying to do this with the scriptures today, it is always great to find a verse from God's holy word that means what it says and says what it means in response to the heresies espoused by those who say that God is through with Israel and that all prophecy has already been fulfilled. And so what we're reading today is just all metaphor, allegory. Certainly there are a lot of verses that fit this criteria, or these criteria, and this passage is no exception. This whole statement shows us that Isaiah understood, first of all, that his words were the words of the Lord. That is what it's saying. His words were the words of the Lord. Secondly, it tells us that Isaiah meant that his prophecy needed to be understood literally. And this is what he's saying in that first particular part. Search from the book and read, not one of these things shall fail. What I've told you is going to happen, and when it happens, go back to the book and read it, for it will show you that my word is true. That is telling us that Isaiah is writing this to be understood literally. Not figuratively, not allegorically, not metaphorically. It is to be understood as something that is going to happen because God said that it would. In a sense, he was challenging scoffers and doubters to check out the scriptures. Look it up, as it were, once the prophecy is fulfilled. When the prophecy is fulfilled, go to my word and look it up. And you'll see that I was faithful to do what I said I would do. Turn to Second Peter chapter 1. For even in the New Testament, we're told that we do not follow after cunningly devised fables. It, it amazes me. There, there are study uh, books out today. There are study Bibles uh, out uh, done by committees that, that want to lessen the, 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 the literal understanding of God's Word. There's one uh, that has a, kind of a Latin-Spanish name, you know, Renovare, the Renovare Bible, or some call it the Renovare Bible. Uh, it's a new Revised Standard Version, which I don't really recommend that version of, of the Scriptures, but uh, in it, which was uh, one of the... Uh, one of the people that uh, actually edited the book uh, or the study notes, two people actually. I, I mentioned names because, you know, we have to be aware of these things. But Eugene Peterson, who also wrote the, uh, the Message Bible, you know, the, they call it a Bible. I just call it a real mess because it doesn't really teach the Bible. Um, quits mentioning Jesus' name and just doesn't, really isn't something to read. I, I don't recommend it at all. But he's... he's done some of the uh, editing notes and uh, Richard Foster also was celebration of discipline and kind of into contemplative prayer and kind of mystical things that really have nothing to do with with uh, with the you know uh, the disciplines and the uh, the true uh, discipleship of the scriptures uh, they actually say in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis when you read the study bible that they consider the first 11 chapters of Genesis as legend just letting you know, this is what people are saying, who, say, who call themselves Christians, this is what they're saying. 
the Bible says. So, just so you'll know, Peter says, Peter who saw Jesus with his eyes, who knew Jesus, who touched Him, who, 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 who held Him, Peter says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain, which was the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he says in verse 19, and take note of this, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. You see, the time of great tribulation is coming with certainty upon the earth. Of this there can be no doubt. It isn't for us to bring it about. It isn't even for us to prevent it. Understand this. We are simply called to be ready and to pray in this manner as Jesus gives us in Luke 21. And I want to close with this. Luke 21 verse 34 he says, but take heed to yourselves. Now remember we started with a warning. Take heed. Jesus says, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. The whole earth. Watch therefore. And pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. And to stand before the Son of Man. Better that we are ready to be caught up with the Lord Jesus and stand before the Son of Man than face this day. Those who have received Jesus Christ will not face that day. That's how devastating that day is. That's why we need to be in the love of Christ. That's why we need to know Jesus that's why every day we need to give our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, lead me, guide me, not my will, your will. Let me be your servant. Let me serve you with all my heart. And let's love one another as, as, as the day approaches. Let's love one another. Let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But as the day approaches, let's be the believers that Jesus wants us to be. Let's love one another. Let's serve one another. Let's be hospitable to one another. Let's minister with the gifts that God has given us to minister. Let's not stand back. Let's move forward with one another in the love of Christ. Shall we pray?